Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me this evening, we welcome our friend, freelance writer, Fraser Brown. Hello. And we also have GameSpeed's Inspector of Expansions, Rowan <laughs> Kaiser. Good morning. Uh, so, uh, as, as, since we've invited the Inspector of Expansions uh, onto the show, you might have guessed that we're going to be talking about Civilization VI, uh, Rise and Fall, uh, the new expansion for the latest edition of Civilization. And uh, it adds quite a few things, but I'm not sure how much it actually changes, and that's one of the things we'll be talking about. Uh, and maybe on a more macro level, we'll also be talking about where we're at with Civ. And what we think of some of the impulses behind uh, the new ideas being played around with uh, in this expansion. But, uh, you know, real quick, Fraser, why don't you, can you give us a quick sort of thumbnail version of what Rise and Fall's big ideas are that we're going to be discussing on this show? A lot of it feels like it's changing the structure of Civ, but using the idea of like unstacking things, which we've seen a couple of times already. So it's like progress throughout history has been unstacked in the form of an ages system, a dark age, a gold age, that changes how you move from era to era. Typically you're moving from ancient, you know, ancient worlds to classical to medieval to renaissance. That remains, but there's more going on there. It's almost like a, a, a sort of a race to gather points so the next age is a, is a better one for you. Uh, so it just feels like this sort of fundamental underlying progress through history has been uh, changed and unstacked. And then there are a few things on top of that with diplomacy uh, changing as well. It's, it's a really broad expansion. It's hard to kind of pin down one specific kind of theme uh, it really does just dig into a lot of the underlying stuff that Civ's had for, for years and kind of shake up some of the dusty old systems that we've gotten used to. I mean, the, the idea of the rise and fall of the title is uh, both a callback to when I think Civ was at its best with the Civ 4 mod rise and fall, um, but also getting into the idea of... Uh, things aren't just on a straight line of progress. You can lose cities, you can have dark ages in addition to golden ages. Uh, there are various aspects of history that are attempting to be modeled here or are being attempted by Civ to be modeled that are not the sort of thing that Civ has usually gone in for before. Uh, this is both in an extremely mechanical sense of adding city loyalty and the Dark Ages and the progress system, uh, but also there's a kind of philosophical push in this that I think we also saw with the last of the Civ Five expansions, which is uh, an attempt to model history beyond the sort of Whig history march of progress. The great empires get greater. The the civs that have been chosen for this game are, with the exception of the Mongols and uh, somewhat the Dutch, uh, they're not civilizations that are famous empires that dominated much of the landmass of of the world. Uh, they are uh, civs like Korea, which uh, the leader that was chosen in the era that they're sort of focusing on are Korea sort of bringing itself out of Chinese hegemony or defending itself against Chinese hegemony. Uh, the Mapuche, I, th I hope I said that right, but, uh, you know, resistors to sp Spanish colonization. 
that kind of thing. Uh, so we, we've got a sieve that's kind of philosophically trying to say that it's about history in a way that is not the way that sieve has usually treated history in the past. On the surface, it feels very un-4X-y, doesn't it? Because 4X is always about this constant progress, constant expansion and conquest. And this is saying, well, sometimes actually you're really moving back and you're consolidating because you're going through a dark age and you're worried about the loyalty of your cities. Uh, it's not just, as you said, this straight line through history. Uh, and that is very odd for a 4x game and maybe a little bit closer to a, a grand strategy where the the goal is not just victory but just going through history yeah and here i want to uh, have a little shout out to rowan's piece uh, uh for uh you know the preview for this expansion discussing how in, in many ways it appeared to be trying to make civilization into something historically it has has not been uh that civilization has this uh you know weak history is a perfect way to put it uh but civilization has has always been sort of this march of progress narrative uh and and really centered on like major colonial and imperial powers uh and here uh Rise and Fall is trying to get away from that, but then also I think on the mechanical level, uh, and I appreciate this quite a bit, is trying to make even the flow of the game feel a little bit less linear or predestined uh, in some ways, which I think was a shift that was already underway with the overall design of Civilization VI compared to Civilization V, uh, particularly the two games at launch. Uh, but this game and this this expansion in particular seems to introduce enough new elements that um it feels like there's a little more space for like lateral movement is the way i would put it like with with rise and fall it feels like you have a little more space for uh you know not everything has to be this steady you don't have to sort of stay on this like accelerating power curve you can you can have dips you can have surges and you can still make you know key choices pretty far into the game uh which is a pleasant departure from civilization 5 for me one thing that i really like about this in terms of uh what i call the race um in the 4x genre where everyone starts at the same place and they're racing to get to an end point and if you feel like you're too far ahead or too far behind on that uh it messes up your motivation a lot uh or at least for me i guess some people probably like being really far ahead um but uh one of the issues that i have had with a bunch of civilizations especially recently is that like i'm sitting there trying to decide what i should do in the classical era build the oracle or whatever and then all of a sudden i get a notification that someone else is in the medieval era but in this that sort of stress that i get from having that pop-up that oh my god i'm too far behind is now like a countdown there are 10 turns left until everyone moves into this new era and that is a way of kind of relaxing the feeling that everything is moving much too quickly for me it's still there a lot in this game uh, I, I still feel that the dominant feeling that i have in the last two civs has been being overwhelmed uh not necessarily with like difficulty of choice but just uh i'm not doing it right um and this is relaxing me to some extent which i think is a is a major improvement 
I think it's important to, to note as well that they've added this new era system without removing the old one because now it's uh, you have personal, like individual eras uh, and world ones. So the world moves in from the, the classical to the medieval at the same time. But because of the things that you've re researched, your civics and your tech, you may have actually entered it on your own before and thus you have access to all these new technologies you have an aesthetic change in your civilization as well so you are still getting ahead but everyone's just got a much more equal chance to catch up with you so you're still getting those advantages it doesn't feel like you're being hobbled so everyone so the world feels more egalitarian it's like giving everyone a step up but not reducing how much further you can get yeah, the other element of this, of course, is we have the Golden Ages and the Dark Ages. So in addition to this structure of the world moves through these eras together, um, and your civilization still, like, you'll, you'll get a pop-up that lets you know, like, well, even though we've all been in the classical era for a few turns now, you've just unlocked your first classical era text. So you get a little pop-up that says, like, uh, well, now the classical era has truly begun uh, now <laughs> that you have sort of, now that you've hurried up and actually researched some goddamn classical tech. That's kind of the, that's kind of the hurry along message uh, you're getting. But uh, on the, on that sort of world on that global scale, um, everybody's in the classical era, but for some people it's going to be a normal era where all game rules are the same. Nothing's really changed. Uh, and then for others, it's a dark age, uh, which has some sort of debuffs, uh, that are sort of civilization wide. And then for others, it can be a golden age, which has some interesting, uh, civ wide, uh, buffs and bonuses, uh, attached to it. And, it's an interesting idea. I'm a like I've come away feeling kind of ambivalent about it. Like I th I think I like it, but I don't. I, but I'm not sure. Like I think I like it, but I'm not sure it succeeds as elegantly as a piece of game design as I might like. If that makes sense. I like the idea of the ages themselves. I think that's fairly functional. Um, the Dark Ages, in particular, have these interesting sort of major debuffs versus uh, um, major buff things that you can play as policies. Um, one of them, like, is uh, um, called Isolationism, I think, that I used a few times when I got Dark Ages, where you're you have some sort of major debuff to how much you can do externally, but your trade routes will give you major... Your internal trade routes from your city to another city will give you buffs to uh, production and um, uh, food. So when you are trying to build your cities up internally by sending them to each other, you get a major improvement. I think you can't settle new cities or you can't build new bi settlers while this is going on. So it, it's very much a kind of, I am going to consolidate and get my economy up and running uh, section. Uh, so there's interesting ideas there and the dedications that you can make at the start of a new age that can kind of guide you. Here's what I'm going to do in this. Those seem pretty well done, although sometimes there only feels like there's one choice, like 
if I'm doing a culture-based civilization, there's only one culture-based dedication, and those kind of feel like they're pushing you toward the end game. So I'm not as excited about those as the as the Dark Age policies. But uh, how you get to these ages, the sort of march of progress thing, uh, I think is is where it falls apart a little bit, uh, where. Like, early on, when you clear Barbarian Village, you get these age points. And later on, you don't necessarily get those age points. When you research certain texts, when you build wonders, when you get great people, you get the age points. And those just don't feel fully fleshed out to me. The issue is that it's it's not clear how the system really works from the outset. Because, for instance, you, you mentioned that you clear out a Barbarian Village, you get an age point, but then you stop. It's because it's it's mostly focused on firsts. So if if it's the first, well, you get extra age points if it's like a world first. So you're the first person to ever murder a barbarian or whatever. Um, and you get one for your civilization first. But you, after that, you've done it. It's not um, a monumental achievement anymore. Uh, the thing is, actually picking what's a monumental achievement, it does... It's like, how does it work? It's not clear at all. There are some uh, districts that you can build that you, you get points for building every district if you selected, I think, a dedication that allows you to do that. So you can also customize how you get more points, uh, which seems like a benefit, but it just actually ends up making it even harder to follow how to generate enough points so that you get... Uh, a golden age but i do like how it makes you set these sort of objectives like i need to get this many points so i can get either out of a dark age and into a heroic age or the next age is just a regular golden age or whatever but it would make a lot more sense if we could see a list or at least predict exactly what we would need to do and set ourselves these goals rather than just being left with an objective and no real clear path to actually achieving it but there are some things that are repeatable, like in the early ages, the first two, if you clear a, any barbarian camp, you get two points, and you get three if it's near your cities by whatever arbitrary measure they're using for that. So uh, since I play on epic speed usually, there are always a lot more barbarian camps, so I feel like I'm early in the game either constantly going hero or golden age, golden age, and then it sort of dumps me into a dark age because the further you get, uh, it's it's automatically like going up and down. Um, I'm not explaining this terribly well uh, because it feels like the it's unbalanced in terms of what you get, uh, how much of whatever you need to get the new points are at different speeds. They can be more difficult to get those points or way way easier. And when you have a golden age, it means that you need more of those points in order to avoid a dark age the next time. So every age I get seems to be either golden or dark playing on epic speed because I do so well early that it becomes impossible to get it. And then when you're in the dark age, you get the heroic age and you kind of ride that. And uh, this goes along to something that Troy was talking about uh, to us in a chat where he said that it's weird that the golden ages are rewards for existing within a golden age. Like, if you're doing well enough that you get those points, as opposed to the golden age being the start of that point where you get uh, you get the, the rewards, uh, which I think is a very interesting take on the sort of issues of how golden ages are treated in games. 
what did you guys think of like active research? You mean the the way that research is handled with the is done in 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 six in general? Yeah, where you go out and and kind of like discovering things and stuff like that speeds up I, certain I th- research of certain texts. I think that's great. I think it's it's a really good system for keeping giving you good short term goals through the game. Because I think that's they. It feels like that's sort of been modeled on the active research, but it's just not gone far enough. Because with active research as well, there's a connection between what you're doing and the text it speeds up. Like if you build a boat or whatever, no, I think it was like Settle, settle by the on coast. the Coast or something yeah. like that. Yeah, Settle by the Coast, you speed up shipbuilding. It's logical, like it makes sense. If you want to be building ships, you're going to settle by the coast anyway. It all ties into each other. There's nothing like that with ages. It doesn't feel like there's any real structure to to how you're achieving these golden ages. Um, There's there's a sort of cart before the horse thing that goes on with civilization recently in terms of, you know, these things are kind of there because they're there and they make sense mechanically. Um, But uh, they're there because they're there in history. These are things that a historical game wants to model, and they make sense meca- mechanically, but I'm not sure they actually make the game better. Um, and this is this is going way broader, but this is the feeling that I get as to why civilization has been surpassed by some of its peers is that it feels like it has features to have features more than it has uh, a coherent ideology behind the game design ideology is probably the wrong word in this context but uh yeah i mean like i i still sort of feel like this series as a whole is struggling with a trap it unwittingly built over time uh i guess in some ways like to me it still feels like i can draw this pretty clear through line from Civilization One through Civilization Four, like there's a lot of there's a lot of changes within those games, uh, and they're different from each other. But like Civilization Four, like would have been comprehensible to me uh, back when I was playing Civilization Two a lot. Like I think I would have grokked that a little more easily because it was like still utilizing a lot of the classic form of Civilization, and after that. Civilization V sort of consciously tries to reinvent what a Civ looks like um, and really sort of push the game some really different directions, particularly particularly with, like, how it approaches endgame scenarios and how closely tied now different Civs are to their endgame win conditions. And... But that, but Civilization V at launch is almost too restrictive on that front, is and it is almost too like, in some ways, almost too gamey, right? It threw out a lot of things that people like for historical flavor. People were like, "Where the hell did religion go? We really liked religion in in Civ Four. We want it back." Um, and that's really what Firaxis end up spending the next like two expansions putting back into the game is all that extra like historical flavor. So it's still got like that sort of uh, guided missile approach to history in some ways of like, well, here we are in the stone age, but someday we're going into space. Uh, And that's kind of how that game is constructed. Even 
with all those expansions that open up all these new elements uh, within the game. But then that's also kind of a that's that's also kind of a solved problem. Like, well, now we've had that sieve. Now, how do we change things up yet again? Uh, and Civilization VI, I feel like struggles a little bit because it's. I think two defining traits are that a, it's not like OG Civ and it's not like Civ Five, and B, it's a lot fussier when it comes to like city management. Like it's a lot more about the map uh, than maybe Civilization has ever been. Uh, and so, like, I kind of feel like Civilization Six is in this weird is is kind of in this weird place where its identity is based on so many negatives, like so many things that it's not, uh, that it sometimes makes it feel like a grab bag of ideas and not necessarily like a cohesive game, uh, if that makes sense. And Civilization, like Rise and Fall, feels like it fits into that mold a lot for me. Yeah, It's got the right ideas. I'm just not sure that they're the right ideas in the right game uh what i think that i always think about is i was scrolling through facebook around the time that civilization 6 came out and got an ad for civ 6 i think because at one point i liked xcom i, I almost never like anything branding but i do get my my for access based ads pretty regularly anyway it pulled a quote from the ign review and it said this is the most fully featured civilization at launch ever or something like that which is a really weird quote to pull uh, because there are like overall things you know about how good the game is as opposed to what are the things that the game has, but I think Civilization Six is stuck in the point where they realize there are things that a civilization feels like it needs to have, and it needs to have you know military victories, science victories, culture victories, and religious victories, so it has all those things, but do culture and religious victories actually work? Do they feel like they really work in this game um I, I, I'm just not that interested in either of them. I, they, they don't feel like a thing that I want to do. And then there are several civilizations that are built on the idea that these are the things you have to go for. How many civs are built on you are a faith-generating civilization? There's like a quarter of them. Um, so now I don't really feel like those civilizations are made for me to play. And the, this this sort of leads to a feeling of, the way that civilization needs to be played now is you find your fighter in the fighting game that feels the best for you and you learn to master them and you do whatever you can to make sure you have a good game with the ones that you have as opposed to sure i can pick whoever and play whatever map and i'm getting a good game out of that and that feels very constraining to me in a way that the the sort of fully featured idea has led to you know, it's weird that, like, cause I had the exact same reaction. That's a really good way to put it. Like, I finished a game as Korea. Uh, I was cruising toward a science victory, and I kept things so chill for so long that I really let my army sort of fall to ruin in some ways because I just kept building those wonders, uh, just kept developing that sieve. And so, basically, like, I was in uh, sort of a techno cultural wonderland uh, in some ways. And then, like, late in the game, uh, Norway was just like, you know, what? we're gonna we're gonna mess you up. Uh, see if you can stop us. And I was like, oh, you've built a lot of recent tech military units lately, haven't you? Well, let me um, 
let me see what I can do about that. And I tried to buy basically an army overnight. It didn't go well and I'm getting rolled. But at the end of that game, I immediately felt like, oh, well, I actually understand Korea a lot better now. Uh, I better play another game with Korea so that I can really sort of lock in my strats uh, in some ways. And I think part of that, what, see, what I find refreshing about this is in some ways it feels like I still have more flexibility in what I choose to do with Korea than I necessarily would have had with the Civ 5 model. Like with the Civ 5 model, I felt like there was such like a gravitational pull to have each Civ sort of match its one or two end game conditions. Really, it's, you know, sort of built toward one victory. Korea does that a little bit, but Civ 6 feels loose enough that I can still make those sort of snap decisions late in the game you know, in the, you know, in the industrial era or whatever, I can still make decisions about like pushing hard for culture or pushing hard for science. And I can still like, it won't be easy, but I still have the freedom to sort of reconsider those courses of action. And I don't need to sort of stay on target throughout my entire game and make every decision in reference to this desired end game state. Uh, and I kind of like that. But the way they achieved that, I think, in some ways, is by adding a lot more stuff that you have to sort of track and keep into account, like, and, and Rise and Fall sort of definitely fits within this mold, like, it helps if you've internalized how boosts to research work, right? Like, what actions can I take that will sort of let me power level through these next tiers of technology? Uh, what activity should I be pursuing now in this phase of the game to be accruing golden age points so that I can then have this mid game colonization rush uh, with a golden age behind it that will allow all my cities to start at four population, which is a really cool golden age buff, by the way. Uh, but that's so like in some ways I have more freedom, but in other ways I feel like I'm struggling to parse the overall shape of Civilization VI in a way I have not struggled with Civ maybe ever. I'd finished, you know, I, fi I finished my review and I, I really enjoy the expansion a great deal. I think that, as I said when we've originally talked about Civ VI, even though I cooled on it really quickly, I still think it was the best Civ at launch. Um, and I think this might be the, the best first expansion for a Civ as well because it really goes deep into what Civ is and 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 tries to, to mix things up. But I felt even then that it hadn't gone far enough and the more I played after I, I finished reviewing it, the more I just wanted to, to stop <laughs> because I just think, and this is we, we talked about it a lot the last time we spoke about the game, I think after 20 odd years it feels like Civ needs to be like crazy different. Like, something truly absurdly different. It needs to be a, a completely new experience because we've had all of these experiences before so many times. I mean, this isn't, it's not just six games. It's six games and expansions over decades. And I think when you've got a game that runs for that long and, and pretty consistently, then you need to mix things up a great deal more than, than Firaxis, perhaps feels willing to do and I, I think 
there's a problem where they've, they're sort of beholden to a fan base with certain expectations. But we've seen that they're willing to ignore that sometimes with the religion thing when they were like, oh, we're not going to put religion in at launch with, with Civ Five, and everyone freaked out. So they're willing to, to make, take these risks. And I just wish they would be more in favor of creating really unusual and new uh, systems. What I, I, I wonder if might be a, a better approach would be to pick a sieve and just develop that for as, as long as people are willing to play it. And, and I think we can see from the amount of people still playing Civ V, it's, it's a lot longer than Firaxis may have thought. Uh, was the case, and f create offshoots. Like, if Beyond Earth hadn't sucked, wouldn't that be good? <laughs> Things that are still, that still feel Civ-like, but that are, are not beholden to this kind of 20-odd year legacy. But maybe it's just that's a result of me just being a bit bored and wanting things to be completely and radically different. I'm not sure most players would actually want a sieve that they barely recognized. Well, let's talk about Firax what Firaxis has been able to do in the past, because they have done this. They've taken a fan base and said, you know, we, we understand what you're doing, but we're going for the pure, simple form of this game. And I'm talking about XCOM here. Like, people were super upset about them only having two movement-slash-shooting points or phases or whatever uh, as opposed to your characters having you know 85 action points and shooting a gun costs 32 of those or whatever uh, but what they did with XCOM was they took what a lot of the core awesomeness of that series was and simplified it into a thing that was super accessible and maybe what what we're looking for is like a really good sequel to Civilization Revolution. Uh, we want something that figures out what the core of Civilization is and hones in on that. Uh, and this is getting philosophical in a way from Rise and Fall, which I do think is a good expansion. And we should, we should sort of come back to that at some point soon, probably. But uh, it, there is a kind of feeling that this is overplayable, uh, I saw uh, one of my Twitter friends, Retro Remakes, was talking about how under and overplayable were terms that were often used in the 80s games press, and maybe we shouldn't bring those back, but it, overplayable seems like a really good description of where Civ 6 and where what, Civ what 5 does that mean? got to. What does it mean to be overplayable? He didn't define it, but I think... <laughs> Why do you think do it's we mean like, like a, a song is overplayed, or do we mean like no, you're... overplay a bull. You can play it too much. No, no, not 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 in terms of time. In terms of things that can be done. Uh, in terms of amount uh, of right, like, amount of you've stuff. overplayed your right. Okay, yeah. This is just how I'm interpreting it. I don't know if right. that's the way that it was used in the '80s games press. But Civilization VI feels overplayable in terms of here are all these different things that are coming <laughs> at you. What? And I don't know exactly what the well, core so of this game is supposed to be. This is the weird thing. See, and this is where I really sympathize. Because as much as I'm like, well, what you guys should do is really just change up civilization. Get wild with it. Whatever the <laughs> hell. The problem is, if they did that, maybe I'd be delighted. But maybe I'd also be just pissed off that basically Firaxis set ablaze my 20 years, 30 years, however long it's been, of like playing these damn games. And all the... like. 
accumulated knowledge and assumptions that I can sort of take in each sieve and like let that sort of guide me through uh, that like, okay, well, we're just going to shred that now. And but it's not being shredded because all the other sieves still exist. And and one of the things that they could do is have an, a, a sort of flagship. This is the sieve, and we're going to keep working on this for for years. As long as you keep buying it, we'll keep working on it. Windows and then we have these sieve? other <laughs> yeah, Windows Ten but sieve. I was thinking even like um, the, the something more akin to the paradox model, where it's like over you know these are long running games that are developed over the course. These kind of almost living games. Uh, while developing other things that are, you know, things that we could understand as Civ players and based on Civ, but for for not just not even a new audience, an audience that has grown way too familiar and comfortable with with these games. But it doesn't mean all the other games don't suddenly exist. It's like when people are like, "Oh, you've ruined my childhood." No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. Cartoon. I mean that the mean design you is parsable the game. because of that. Yeah, yeah. Like, because if you think if about you it, played it yeah. Civilization Six is daunting as hell, right? Like, one of sure. the things that makes it sort of easy to get into is like, okay, well, you know, it controls like all the other cars I've driven that have been like, you know, the earlier Civilization models in some ways. And that helps me get to the part where I'm like, oh, wow, like, I really need to, you know, interact with this map really differently, don't I? Like, ooh, like, colonization rules, like, the incentives for that stuff has really changed from, like, what it was before. I really need to think about now, like, mid-game expansions and, like, sort of scouting for territory much later into the game. And all those things that, like, where where all that complexity lives now in Civilization VI, and which makes it kind of a difficult game to grasp, is that, you know, its first impression is like, yep, it's Civ, it's familiar, it's comfortable, and then it keeps sort of unfolding new complications for you that are all like, all feel very minor in themselves in some ways like for instance boosted tech research is like a cool little thing like that's nifty right but like it can significantly accelerate like your progression through parts of the tech tree it becomes a resource that maybe you should like learn to use but now it's this like collection of tiny decisions the best example for that that i i have is that like in my initial build queue the third thing i always build is a slinger because that will get me the boost for archery yes. um yeah so it's, a lot of them are more general than that but it does create a kind of if you memorize what you want from each tech then you know that you're going to want to build a slinger fairly early um but the big and see, thing that's is, a good argument for them not having those um, era objectives and making them clear. Yeah, I still think it would be better, but it does mean that you would then be just running through a checklist with activities. But, but right get. now you still the, are. You on, know you on. still I, are. I was only halfway done. The the big thing that I think what's is really complicating this game is the district system because the way that you look at a previous sieve and say this is a good city spot is now totally different. You did right. not want mountains in previous civs. Now you want mountains if you want to build a science or holy city. It's just that simple. Um, deserts, if you have the right wonders, can be amazing. 
so a, a city especially that, ancient yeah like ancient and classical it's crazy the amount of advantages you get if you're got some desert tiles so would, would you look at the map and you say this is a good city spot because there are a few nice resources near it got some got some hills got some grassland this is perfect that's not necessarily true anymore and that's a really big learning curve that comes over multiple playthroughs i think like figuring out because you you don't get an industrial zone until like a third or half of the way through the game um so then you have to figure out where's a good city to build an industrial zone and then you have to internalize that so that when you're building cities early in the next game you know okay this could be a really great industrial city and you, then you could use those little tags that they have and so on and what um, adjacency so, am i getting yeah the adjacency bonuses are huge with with the right thing, and now they they've added more policies in this game that like will uh, massively increase your bonuses if you have big adjacency bonuses. If you have like a plus four or more, then you then you can have some policies that just turn those into uh, exponentially stronger things than they already are. Um, but these things only come through multiple playthroughs in a way that I don't think is the case with even Civ Five. Uh, so th- there's this level of complexity here that um, Rise and Fall, I think, doesn't actually add too much to, which I'm not sure is... It sort of goes against what Civ Six was doing, but I think it does make things a little bit better. What's funny is it's still, uh, when you have a settler, it still shows you or recommends places to build your city and i always find that hilarious because i'm like how do you know what i'm going to be doing in like 600 years how do you know what i'm looking for and it's like why are you telling me to go there there's so many mountains over in this other place i should clearly be going there i want to make a holy city it's i kind of worry that people are going to start playing civ and be like oh i'm going to follow this and suddenly they have the most boring city it's like yeah there's fertility uh but there's like nothing around there to build any districts near although i have found that those things are those guidelines are often a little bit better uh than my instincts for creating generic cities because i think they they sort of realize hey this one actually has a bunch of district bonuses you might be interested in in a way that uh when i was shaking the rest off i wasn't realizing because like I restarted, you know, three, four different games because I kept building cities that I thought were going to be good and they ended up sucking. And when that's your second city, you're in trouble. Um, I, I think the the city recommendation thing is good in some ways. I find it really seems to undervalue uh, strategic resources in the area. Uh, so, like, if like, if you let that thing deter you from, like, really critical locations, it can kind of screw you in terms of uh what sort of uh economic booms uh and military booms you can get later but i do love that like it's turned formerly sort of dead ground on civilization maps into really exciting geography right like you know you see a mountainous river valley now in this game you're like hell yes sign me up <laughs> like we are going to do some science and we're going to do some faith we're going to be we're going to have it all it's going to be great um we've got wakanda set up yeah, yeah exactly whereas like you know in previous civs you saw a bunch of mountains you were like well that's just wasted fucking tiles 
so I, I actually I, I love that all this I actually this is my favorite part about Civ is like I really enjoy sort of the the city builder aspect of Civilization Six. I re- I really I really dig it. Where I find Rise and Fall becomes a challenge for me is Civilization Six was already a game of like the accretion of small decisions and bonuses adding up to pretty important differences in the mid and late game. And now Rise and Fall in a lot of ways adds adds a bunch of small little bonuses, maybe even smaller than the ones in Civilization Six. All these like really minor seeming things that also are supposed to add up into big meaningful things. And I think the error points are a good example of that. Speaking of like things that sort of add up and uh, sort of become important with time, um, boy, do they really want you to marry your your alliance partners uh, in the in, in the in Rise and Fall? Uh, that that's one of their that's one of the things they're really touting is that now your alliances aren't just these um, you know you don't just like sign sign an alliance with somebody and then just sort of you know let that sit and trust that they've got your back if anything goes wrong. Uh, now you've actually got real incentives to cultivate relationships with other players and then also turn them into like to use like what you call like soft power elements, right? Like to really sort of like expand a trading economy because that actually strengthens alliances and provides some more like extra bonuses. What do you guys think of how the alliance structures of Rise and Fall change things? It's... So I think we can all acknowledge that Civ has had a a challenging twenty odd years trying to sort out diplomacy, um, <laughs> that it's been uh, a mixed bag. Sometimes I'm not I can't remember what you guys uh, thought about diplomacy in in Civ Six generally and the sort of plots and quirks that each leader has and and their unique and random goals. But I, I certainly find it improved in Rise and Fall because it, I felt like I was being encouraged more to engage with these other leaders because I knew there were like a lot more serious benefits. And these, the idea of specialized alliances, it's something that like a lot of 4Xs have really delved into and Civ has not really given a toss about. So it's actually nice to see that you can, you, you're not just uniting with this other Civ, you're actually going in with an agenda and it's this kind of purposeful unification rather than we're really good friends now generally. Um, so Rob shouted out a piece that I wrote uh, earlier. So I want to shout out a thing that Rob put together for his Waypoint review and he had a, made a really good point at the end of it, which was that uh, civilization has added all these different ideas that are important in history and are good ideas with rise and fall, but they're all kind of optional. Uh, and that's something I totally felt with the alliances, probably more than anything in the expansion, because I did not get one. <laughs> like I played, you know, three, four games pretty deep and I had one alliance ever that ended after the 30 turns or whatever. Um, other, I couldn't get beyond the declare friendship, uh, point with anybody pretty much and i 
it seems like a neat idea. It just did not allow me to engage with it, and I was okay with that. Uh, my my empire was going along just fine without that. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a good it's a good thing to include, but it also is a little fiddly, perhaps. Um, well, I think that that's a general thing, though, Rowan. That a lot of the features in Rise and Fall can be overlooked and it doesn't stop you from doing quite well like you can actually just disengage from the race to have an awesome golden age you can just have dark ages and you know you might actually get heroic age one dark age because you've done quite well randomly no i I think you just ignore it i think sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't work and it's luck it is a lot of luck uh, yeah no i mean i mean uh Sometimes that works in the game design, like with the right, with okay. the ages. I think it it works in that you can get these things semi randomly, and they create interesting choices further down the road. If you think about it too long, it kind of falls apart a little bit. With the alliances, though, um, part of the issue is Civ Six did a really really good job aesthetically, uh, and perhaps the best thing it did aesthetically was in the creation of its leader heads. Uh, their, their animations, their voices, uh, all that stuff. Like, that they didn't somehow turn these characters into memes constantly is probably why this ser- why Civ Six was behind Civ Five for so long on Steam. Because these things are hilarious. Uh, and, you know, they're cute, they're adorable, they're nasty, they're, uh, they've got a lot of stuff going on with them, and the game does not do a good enough job of making you actually want to engage with those leaders in the way that uh, they perhaps should be. Uh, If the alliances aren't quite working the way that they probably should be, which is the case for, for me, then I'm not actually seeing these leaders in enough ways that Civ Six can show off one of its strengths. Because Poundmaker is a hottie. <laughs> and I swear Victoria is negging me. I I do kind of adore the way um Frederick Bar- Barbarossa, when he meets you, forgets what he's ruler of halfway through his speech <laughs> and like starts visibly struggling to recall the different parts of Europe that he rolls. It's really good. I, Robert the Bruce, uh his, Oh my his, god, like, so good. Emo emo uh old scottish or gaelic or whatever uh, that's it, it's real nice i fraser did i, did I mess up the other well, how do you are, are we being respectful i didn't hear of, that okay, sorry are we being respectful of scotland i was going to ask what did you make of robert the bruce um i thought it was you know what i don't really care if they make a cartoon i have <laughs> Robert the Bruce and make it look like Scotland's all about golf courses. It's a lot better than making our like resource whiskey or just drunken stupidity <laughs> or being crap at football. Um, we could yeah instead it could just be lots of like football pitches. This is and like but instead of a bonus, it's like a debuff. <laughs> this is it's like definitely... every time you build one, someone laughs at you. This is definitely the second best game involving building golf courses that Sid Meier has ever put his name on. <laughs> um, but I actually, I, th- I was asked by, by TJ, I think it was, uh, on Twitter a while back when they first introduced the new saves. And uh, if I, as a Scot, was 
is okay with the golf courses. I would like to point out, with, though, with, as with anyone of any nationality, we're not representative of our entire country. But I'm okay with golf being th the main thing. Yeah, I like golf. I used to play. So uh, it gets my thumbs up, I suppose. I, I mean, it's better than replacing all the neighborhood districts it. with Paisleys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're just derelict mills everywhere. I mean... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm I'm cool with it. I I don't think it's uh, distasteful. But like, yeah. So like, with alliances, um, like when I was Powmaker, I was just I was making alliances right and left because that's kind of what you're supposed to do. Um, and I didn't find it too hard to stay on most people's good side most of the time. I just you know kept declaring friendship and respect like respecting their requests. Uh, and I wasn't playing a very expansionist game, so I was able to sort of keep from running afoul of a lot of people. Uh, but even then, it was like... I don't know. Like It's such a weird thing. Like I don't think the answer is, oh, I should have to manage this thing more. Uh, but at the same time, like... It kind of felt like it was another way to engage with the diplomacy system... But then the end result was you'd get your alliances set up and then you'd kind of want to leave it on autopilot because, like, by design, benefits accrue the longer you sort of stay within these alliances, uh, you know, and as long as you sort of keep expanding trade uh, with, your, with your various partners. And I'm not sure that's necessarily... I'm not sure creating a major obstacle to sort of diplomatic realignment is necessarily a great thing but then at the same time like rowan like you know i i also had a lot of games where i had the same experience you did where i basically opted out of most diplomacy and i was like well i'm just gonna you know do my own thing you guys are fine right like yeah, we we call that pulling a stellaris <laughs> jesus yeah so i mean that was a little bit of a it was a weird it was a weird it was, it was a it was a weird system. Uh, I, I did kind of feel like uh, I was running to the uh, you know Department of Motor Vehicles to renew my renew my paperwork sort of on the regular. It's like oh your your declaration of friendship expired with uh, you know with Lataro. You better you better run over there and get him to notarize your friendship declaration again, and uh, then re up that alliance for level three. Let's see how it goes. Like I don't know. It's sort of a thing that it makes sense that it's there, but it doesn't quite feel good, which is, you know, the Civ Six mantra. Uh. I mean, like, I think the, the, the parts of Civ Six that do feel great, like for me, are, are city management in a lot of ways. Uh, but has that been improved by the, the governor system? Because that, I mean, that oh. is very much about city specialization. I hate it, Fraser. But it's kind of, you just hate, you hate I it completely. Hate it. Why don't you why don't you tell everyone what the governor system is? I'm too angry. Okay, so <laughs> instead of having governors be these sort of automated rulers who you who just kind of create their own little build queue for you so you don't have to worry about a city, governors in Rise and Fall are these specialized characters uh, who you can send to cities. They take about, I don't know, like five turns to make their way there. And then they give you a bunch of, uh, I guess, some of them are, are good buffs, some of them are kind of boring, and this sort of, 
a, a very, very small uh, tree, basically. It's not even really a tree, is it? It's too small to be a tree, a shrub um, <laughs> of, of upgrades that allow you to specialize your city as, a, as a, an economic center or this... Uh, but you're specializing uh, the governor, remember, not the city. Yes, but you're but you're using the mm-hmm. governor to sort of special. It's part of city specialization. The way in you, theory, you build districts. In theory, yeah. Um, and but a lot of the bonuses are kind of forgettable. And I I think that they're like so you get the influence you need to spend on these governors quite a lot. It's really easy to fill all of your cities. Well, not all of them, because there's a... Is it nine governors? There's nine governors, but one goes to free cities instead of your own city. Right, yeah, that's it. Um, and there's there's about six or five or six upgrades for each of them. You'll unlock them pretty quickly. When you have enough... It is The, the resource is called influence, isn't it? They call it to sp- you spend on governors. I can't even no, remember. You, you, you improve the governors... You get governor promotions based on the civic tax. Is it right? Yes, yes. Okay. Influence yeah. so is still you... for envoys to free cities. That's right. Yeah. Um, so you can either choose to promote an existing governor or get a brand new one and plonk them in a city that they might be useful in. But it's. Firstly, the range of them is really weird. It's weird that there are only nine. And it's, I guess. The idea is that they're meant to all be important decisions. So if they just created a, a, like a hundred random governors for you to pick from that you eventually unlock, it, it might not seem as meaningful as, as having this very limited list. But if if they want to do it, I do wish there had been there were more upgrade paths, more customization as well. Because un- ultimately, you're not picking a path with these governors. You're just picking what upgrades you unlock first. Um, uh, by the end, they will always look the same. So once you've seen a governor, you've you've pretty much seen it all. The next time you use them, you're not going to be seeing anything different. Uh, I don't hate the system. I think I'm fine with the system. I don't feel that it is as cool as it originally sounded. Um, but it, I, I think it... You you like the city building, Rob, so why why do you not like this? I think because the city building all made sense and was somewhat graceful and easy to parse. Like, you'd look at your tile yield, you'd sort of go into the city manager, you'd look at where you can move your citizens around, you'd sort of be thinking about how you'd expand the next district and what, like, tiles you'd place it next to and how that would interact with different adjacent, uh, you know, improvements or other districts or, uh, you know, natural terrain features, all that stuff kind of just worked and was sort of easy to, I could look at the city and I had an easy picture of like how these, this next decision was going to fit into, uh, the construction of that city. The governor doesn't feel integrated with that really the governor sort of sits on top of the city and is providing these other uh bonuses and the thing is like so as long as the governor sort of stays put i guess i can like don't have to worry about that too much but if i hit a point where i need to start moving that governor around like the governor encourages to get the most out of the governor you probably should be thinking about like moving that governor around to wherever the governor's uh, buffs will do the most good in any given time. 
But the governors themselves, the little talent shrubs, uh, in your words, Fraser, <laughs> like are sort of loosely related, but not in a way that makes any kind of like sense to me. Like not any kind of intuitive sense. Like I can't just like look at, oh, that's the steward. I know exactly where I'm going to send that guy. No, every they're weirdly like, specific they, as well, aren't they? The, there's one that's very good at that, the guy who does the the culture and science buffs, and Tengala. the other ones, the other ones all have these like super specific things. Like Fraser was just saying that like the surveyor who uh, um, will help you expand your city culturally faster. Uh, that makes sense, but then she's also got like a thing where uh, she helps out with ocean tiles, giving more food. Uh, I don't know, but I, th I think there are three main problems with the governors uh, that make them the uh, um, not districts, uh, the estates of uh, Civ Six Rise and Fall. Uh, first of all. This is a game about building on the map. Like, Civilization has always been about building on the map. In Civilization VI, the one thing that I think it has going for it above every other civilization is that this is the game that wants you to focus on the map all the time. And now suddenly you don't with these governors. These governors are abstract concepts attached to your cities. Uh, they're, they're not in a place. They're just a face on an icon. Uh, that's already moving against what this game is is philosophically trying to achieve which i think is is sort of jumping off of rob's point about how they're they don't really feel like city building and then second their buffs aren't very coherent um which we were just talking about they're they're not they don't feel like this is a way that i definitely want to develop this city it's now do i have to develop this city to fit the governor i've applied to it and then the third thing is that the governors are also related to the loyalty system, where they are the easiest way to take a city that's having trouble staying in your empire. You attach a governor to it, and that gives like an instant plus eight buff to their loyalty. I think it's eight. It's, it's somewhere around there. Um, so your motivation for using them is often not where do I get the most benefit from this governor given his or her uh abilities on on their shrubbery it's where do i where where do i have to put this band-aid and to take the band-aid off is a level of micromanagement that doesn't seem to add anything so i just said okay this city was having some loyalty issues now they've got the you know the religious governor that i don't use because i don't like the religion system uh and that's it like that's that's not a fun thing uh, Did you have a lot of problems with, with your cities um, becoming disloyal? Not a lot of problems, but like I said, it's the easiest way to, to put the Band-Aid on when it looks like there might be a problem. In a few sure. Turns. I mean, especially in Dark Ages, when loyalty does start to become an issue, um, then that is probably the best way to use a governor. But I, I didn't find that I was... It was a concern that I was always like aware of, like I kept track of loyalty, but it was more something I exploited um, with other civilizations creating like free cities and then taking them over, which is we, a system I really yeah. enjoy. We should move uh, on to that because I think, or, or we should we should make a, a full space for that because I think that is one I of the most successful parts of this expansion. I agree, it's, I think, but that's what I wanted to talk about. It's, it's, <laughs> I think it's one of my favorite bits. <laughs> but was, well, we can wrap up the governors, but... Uh, 
they're always sort of there. The reason I call them like in estates, which is in addition to EU4 that I think we're, we're all generally unhappy with, is that there's always a thing that you need to do with them, or not always, but it, it pops up. And it's like, okay, you've got a new governor promotion, but there's nothing there that you actually want to do anything with. So it's just a thing that sucks away your attention. And you need to apply a lot of attention to Civ Six. This is, this is a game that has a ton of stuff going on to it. And now there's an extra thing that doesn't really make that much sense with the philosophy of the game and doesn't necessarily enhance what you're attempting to do with the game. Uh, so, yeah, I think the, the governor's... Uh, Oh, yeah, the fourth main problem with the governors is that they don't pop up as full-motion <laughs> video. I scroll with all of these complaints. They don't pop up as a full-motion video telling you how you need to build your empire. This is something that Civ <laughs> needs. You uh, want Civilization II advisors back. <laughs> why not? Why not? It is weird that they just vanished. They were amazing. Build more ships, your majesty. Was it the, the culture guy was Elvis? Or... Yeah. yeah. God, yes. He, he <laughs> sure was. He's brilliant. And the way they glared at each other. So, oh, I loved it. See, I had a, a thought about it. I don't know if it would fix the situation, but I wonder what if governors, and not in the same form that they are now, but what if governors were great people, like great administrators? And we were actually talking, because one of your issues was that they are not in the game. They're, they're just in a menu, the, these portraits. They're not actually present. Um, I really dig this idea you just had. I, I don't. <laughs> For access, you know, I, I'm a freelancer, so I am available. Uh, I don't yeah, know it, I, how you would, like, get great administrator points, maybe in those civic buildings that they've added. Uh, you could have those start generating great administrator points but i do think that having it be something that you sort of work for and turning and you know building another class of uh great people which i think is a very nice flavor that the game adds uh i think that that's that would help a lot yeah i mean it's a big change because uh having them actually present on the map uh, I mean, would they ever be like... I wonder if creating this element of risk where they might actually even be vulnerable to enemies as well might be kind of interesting, I'm not sure. But there is definitely... I like the governor concept. Having these governors who aren't just automated systems, uh, which is usually what they are in 4X games, uh, it, it's way more interesting. But it, it just like so much of this expansion, it's a brilliant idea that doesn't go far enough. Uh, it's just, it's not like, I don't feel like it's a conservative expansion. That wouldn't be fair at all, because actually a lot of the, st a lot of the shake up has, has been really like fundamental stuff. It's some major changes that, that, that we've been looking at. Um, it's a, but yeah, it just doesn't go far enough. It's a, I don't want to quite say radical, but it's a it's a ambitious expansion to a game that is kind of inherently conservative. And I mean this both in terms of what we've been talking about in terms of how civilization is a game that has built up over almost 30 years now. Uh, and so there are things that need to be in civilization that makes it inherently conservative. But there's also a kind of conservative worldview of how history is supposed to progress. Uh, and civilization embodies that to a certain extent. But 
one of the things that this expansion does change and I think is the most successful at kind of shaking that conservatism up is the loyalty system. Not necessarily with your cities where it's a little bit too easy to keep them in line, but in the way that uh, other civilization cities can break away and rebel and maybe join another city, I think adds a dynamic to the game that has been lacking, makes it feel a lot more organic and systemic in a way that civilization has not felt since parts of four for me. Um, this it, it feels like a simulation of a world at a certain level now instead of a, a thing where people are racing to an end game. Um, I just really appreciated the, the fact that you could be playing this not particularly militant Civ, but still enjoy the feeling of gobbling up cities and, and conquest without the actual bloodshed necessarily, or certainly or, reduced bloodshed. Or very limited um, bloodshed, yeah. Exactly. Um, there is just something really um, reassuring about it, knowing that, yeah, I've picked a, a relatively... You know, not necessarily passive Civ, but but a passive playthrough. I've decided I don't want to be an asshole, but I I still want to experience the thrill of seeing my civilization expand and bringing new cities into it without sending out settlers all the time, especially when land starts to get gobbled up. Um, yeah, it's I think it was it's been raised a couple of times, and 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 you wrote about it, Rowan, the idea of having these civs that are not historically conquerors. Um, is an odd choice in a Civ game, which is why it's important to have these systems that supports uh, a diverse, uh, diverse types of conquest. Yeah, you, you can you can take over the USSR with your blue jeans. <laughs> exactly. Um, Wouldn't but, that be an amazing like policy? Sending blue jeans but it, to the Civ. It, it it creates a sense of dynamism on the map where. Uh, if you are creating a strong enough sense of loyalty or if your opponents are getting a little too aggressive with where they're putting their cities, uh, you can kind of pull them into your own orbit. You can also watch civilizations collapse. Like I was playing against Norway and they had a pretty good little sieve of, you know, four or five uh, cities that they, I had stamped down their expansion attempts. But the amount of pressure that they were getting from me and from Scotland and from Georgia were just like shut them down. All of a sudden, all their cities started disappearing. And, you know, we each kind of got the one that was closest to us, uh, which is a really interesting feeling of how the game uh, progresses in terms of kind of consolidating uh, you know, who are the biggest empires, who is going to survive, who's going to get the rise and the fall uh, that civilization just doesn't really have except for, you know, occasional mods. Um, another thing is that you can you can influence it with your spies and by building specific cities to have loyalty. And you can also alter it. Like when a city rebels, chances are it's probably going to rebel to the closest civilization or the one exerting the most loyalty points or whatever i don't i don't remember exactly what the term is for it and it shows on the city a little icon saying which civ is going to get this city but if you send your units out there you can race to go and conquer that city and make it your own and if you have the the governor in place to to make it loyal then you can kind of you know change the flow of history so there's a 
there's a lot going on here that really helps the feeling of making civilization feel organic in a way that it hasn't in a long time. It creates these little um, events as well, and I'm not talking about the kind of international crises, which we definitely should mention, but um, these moments between civs where, for instance, when I was playing as Scotland, um, I think it was like a Spanish city or something, had started to shift its allegiance. Uh, it had rebelled, it had become a free city, and it was going to become Scottish, but the Spanish were obviously not too happy about it and so had massed a small army to take the city back and i had to kind of weigh up like is it worth actually getting in a war with the spanish or indeed just deciding okay i'm not going to wait for the city to flip i'm going to conquer it uh before the spanish can get there in inevitably that would piss the spanish off but it would at least mean i wouldn't have to declare war on them to get the city um so it can, the thing is, it can go many different ways. It's not just this city is going to flip. Uh, you actually have to be proactive beyond just spreading uh, disloyalty. Interesting. See, I haven't... I guess for me, I didn't look at the culture... Uh, sorry, the um, loyalty system too much as an offensive tool. I mostly viewed it as something I needed to sort of care about on sort of thinking defensively. Uh, but there I found it like almost trivially easy to stay ahead of it. Like the only places I really started to run into loyalty problems were with like aggressive, like second or third wave expansions uh, into desirable territory far from home. Uh, so like, you know, mid game expansions and two really cool looking new continents uh, that other people had already settled. Uh, I started running into loyalty problems uh, pretty consistently there because I was setting up shop in loyalty penalty locations and uh, had to stay ahead of that uh, predominantly like using governors and sort of crash building uh, like loyalty, loyalty buildings. Um, but at least you can kind of prepare for that though. Can't, Cause when you settle a city, you get that, um, layer that yeah. shows you if if it's going to have a loyalty problem, but you just weigh up risk versus reward. I guess. Yeah, like I like I pretty fearlessly plunged into disloyal territory <laughs> because I was like, look, I've got a full natural wonder and a mountain and a river. <laughs> oh wow! Like yeah, I'm 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 taking it. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if all my people are speaking <laughs> a completely different language within like two minutes of showing up. Uh, I'm taking that land. But I didn't find it too difficult to sort of stay ahead of that. And certainly if I sort of stayed in my comfortable home territory, loyalty didn't become a factor at all. Um, the other the other place I, I, uh, I was talking to a friend of the show, Dave Heron, about this a little bit. He found loyalty sort of changed up how he had to go about uh, military conquest quite a bit because loyalty was making it very hard to have any conquests stick. Um, though the side effect it sounded like was, uh, for him to raise scorched earth city raising campaigns, uh, through, through enemy territory, because, you know, a raised city can't become disloyal. That's, that's, that's a thing that is in the game now is if you, if you see a city that like, you don't think you can hold, or if you are going to get, because they, 
the your opponent has put it in a bad place that that it's just like I don't actually want this. Time to burn it all down. And <laughs> you know, Civ has always made it a little too easy to just kill a million people in one fell swoop. <laughs> uh, that's always been a slightly odd thing. I remember there were mods for Civ Four that made it so that you had to have troops in a city for as many turns as it had population points if you wanted to raise it. That was always an interesting thing for me uh, because that gave the opportunity for someone to take it back. Because it was just too easy to say, this is a bad city, I don't want it, and murder the hell out of them. <laughs> um, just- I, I think with the loyalty thing, Rob, the, the issue, so the, the way you were experiencing it, uh, was like, it was almost like that, that's based on Fraxis's marketing. They're like, you should, you should have trouble with loyalty and it's it's a wrinkle and an obstacle to overcome but that's not the hook i think the hook is it's a weapon another weapon in your arsenal another tool that you can use and it's weird that that's not been the lead uh it's it's like the the least cool feature in the loyalty system is the one that everyone was talking about originally especially during like preview time it was like this is how the loyalty system works and like well actually it's way more interesting when you're using it to fuck people over uh it also makes the consistent city building uh, a little more interesting because uh one of the things that I don't think Civilization VI gets talked about too much is the way that it makes, over time, like good cities become great cities, and it makes bad city locations plausible. Uh, because when you get new text, like you get, you know, an extra food from a farm, and then here's another one, an extra food from a farm, and then you can build a neighborhood, or not a neighborhood, you can build a supermarket in a neighborhood that gives you some more uh, food. So that areas of your empire that have just been kind of open space because they're not near a river or they're not near a mountain and they're not a thing that you've actually wanted to attempt to colonize become plausible zones over the course of the game as you get the technologies that improve that and the loyalty system adds another wrinkle in a good way in terms of like this is an area that might be bad for me to settle because it's you know in the middle of another country's empire uh, but over time i've developed enough that i can you know I've, I've knocked out their cities uh, and taken them for myself, or I think I have the governor who can hold down this place regardless uh, it, it makes those those sort of city building choices that the game has already done a good job with even better i mean that's another thing i actually just enjoy about civ 6 in general is that um the fact that it doesn't always feel like every other civ had this problem i felt like your first two or three cities were your real cities and anything you built after that was just going to be used to churn out extra production but like all your all your good wonders, all your real important specialty buildings were sort of going to your your starting lineup, uh, basically, and there was no reason to like sort of share the wealth and spread it around. I like that in Civ Six, like if you were really going hard on wonders early in the game, your older cities might be running into a space problem of like I mean, not a crippling one. You'll always have something you can do with those cities. 
Uh, but you might be starting to run into a problem where like the ideal location for some of the new stuff just doesn't exist in the way you've laid the city out. And it might make sense to start emphasizing newer cities or take for sort of your, yeah, exactly. Uh, but for your sort of like mid to late game, uh, wonders and districts and expansions. And you get increasing options in terms of developing those cities quickly, like the policies about the the colonization that you mentioned, um, the trade route, internal trade routes can, you know, just jump, jumpstart production for a city that wouldn't otherwise have much production until it, you know, grew enough to get those hills that are a little ways away. Uh, yeah, the, it's, it's very smart about developing the map. Um, that's always been its greatest strength. You bring up trade, like... The thing I kind of dig about Civ Six in most every respect is that it feels like there's a reason to engage with a lot of these systems, no matter what your overall strategy is. Like, no matter what your strategy is, trade is a good thing to be doing, and it is a good it, it is a good sort of set of options to open up with your empire, uh, so that you can sort of you you can sort of leverage trade. Uh, for development or, uh, you know, buffs to different, uh, you know, uh, to different forms of income. Um, the exception I find to this, and we, we sort of refer to it, is religion. It feels like unless your game is about religion, you do not need to care about this at all. There's no reason to even engage with it. Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, if you're being invaded by like 20 missionaries and you've got like nothing to fight back with, it can be a pain in the ass. Like, you don't have to like be in playing a sort of religious game, but it helps to have some sort of defenses to counter people who are. Mm -hmm. Not if you don't have your own religion you're pushing. Uh, that's true. If you're not actually interested yeah, I mean, yeah. in having, if you're willing to have another religion in all your cities, I guess, and just completely opt out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Which I uh, am. Like, <laughs> the world runs out of religions. Pretty Like, if you, if you defer the religion choice for very long, you will not be able to found one. At which point your game, like, completely becomes about other stuff. And all the religion stuff, at least as far as I can tell, like, basically drops away. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. Uh, it just feels like a lot of things, they have at least tangential relationships to other game mechanics. A lot of strategies have these relationships where they, they touch on these other elements that like, yeah, this is critical to a different strategy. But even if you're a culture empire, like you do need to pay attention to some of the, like it's still beneficial to sort of be running a heavy trade strategy or be sort of aggressively uh, pursuing certain, uh, you know, scientific techs. Um Religion feels like it's on this completely separate track. Um, and then the fact the religious governor all like sort of increases that feeling of like religion siloed off uh, from the rest of the game. Just it feels weird to me. Here's where religion got kind of interesting in, in one of my games. Uh, I actually do. I engage with the religious thing. I think the missionary spam sucks. I think it's really weird that it still happens. Uh, and it really needs to be like have a leash put on it really um but yeah i normally engage with it and i was uh it w i was fighting spain again i don't know what it is with me and the spanish and save but we're always buttonheads and uh i i was i was scotland again and uh, i had my own little protestant faith and they had uh, catholicism uh, which they had founded and uh i basically 
infected their holy city of Seville with my evil uh, Protestant ways. And they were none too chuffed about it. And then uh, an international sort of incident, one of these new crises popped up, demanding that all of the other civs team up against Scotland because of our crusade um, to stop this holy city from, from being completely eradicated. Uh, and so only, unfortunately, Spain had obviously not made very many friends and only a few civs decided to chip in. And I did actually... Uh, conquer their city with religion at least um but it was it was kind of cool having this structured event where it was like right this isn't just this random thing that's happening that nobody knows about everyone in the game knows that seville is being besieged by missionaries that it's that it's become protestant already and that there are like 16 turns to save it um and and they didn't so i got not only did i get Sev turned Seville into a Protestant city, I got a bunch of gold and a bunch of other things as well. Uh, but it turned this, like my random objective that I set myself, turned Seville, uh, Seville Protestant, and it turned it into a proper mission with rewards. Yeah, the, those crises, I don't think they're quite fully functional, but they do add an interesting wrinkle when they, when they genuinely work. They're like mission uh, cards you get in like a tabletop game or something. I really I, I yeah. like them. But but they're but they're you know responsive if uh, if a, one civ takes over an important city early militarily then you can get this uh, crisis to take the city back and you can get a shit ton of money if you manage to do it uh, and that's I, I don't quite think it's all the way there but I like the idea that they're creating a a, a push for dynamism I think it could be pretty interesting in a uh, multiplayer game as well because it's kind of pressures players into yeah. uh, engaging with each other a little bit more it, it's not even pressure it just gives them more incentives because you do get some pretty meaty rewards for uh, navigating these crises and coming out the other end successful yeah, I think it's definitely something that multiplayer would be better because uh, you would be able to negotiate with the other people yeah. if you actually want to go for this. Because if the country is that militarily powerful, then you might probably not be in the position where you can go at yeah, them. Yeah, like talking uh, other, other civs or other players into joining you in this crisis is actually would be really, uh, it would be a vast improvement. Um, so... One last thing that we've sort of touched on, unless you guys have another last thing, no. uh, is the sort of ideal of history that civilization is putting forth. And instead of trying to just have like the biggest empires in human history all going at it, uh, it's now trying to have a wide diversity of both leaders and civilizations and play styles uh, historically and in game to create a game that looks like, you know, it's modern and woke and diverse and representative and all these cool things that we definitely want out of uh, our games, but it feels like it's an awkward marriage with civilization. Um, because, like, we still don't have the Turks, which are, you know, one of the greatest empires in human history, have been in almost every civilization except, I think, the first one. Although some of them did, uh, some of them did take till an expansion or two. Uh, but we do have 
Scotland, who a uh, wonderful, wonderful country filled with amazing people who do, did not conquer the entire Mediterranean and most of the Middle East. Uh, so uh, there's this ideal of what civilization should be that's kind of halfway manifesting in the game itself and halfway not. And I think that's something that I don't know, is perhaps the most interesting thing about uh, Rise and Fall after I have been playing almost 30 years of Civilizations. Well, I mean, I couldn't stop thinking about the entire discussion around including Poundmaker uh, in the game, yeah. in the creek. Because, like, uh, if you haven't followed this conversation, um, when Firaxis announced that the Cree would be in the game and that Poundmaker would be their, rep- their, their leader in Rise and Fall... Um, one of the leaders of uh, the Cree nation um, sort of spoke up and protested using Poundmaker uh, in the game and inserting the Cree into uh, civilization. And there's there's two things to bear in mind. One is that like Poundmaker has descendants who like are alive right now. Like I, there are like I think great-grandchildren of Poundmaker who, like, are people out in the world right now. So he's not, like, some far-removed uh, historical figure. Um, he's a pretty recent figure um, who ties into a lot of ongoing uh, tension and pain uh, between First Nations communities and the Canadian government. Uh, these are not, you know, the, the, you're, you're not at the comfortable remove from uh, historical incidents when it comes to uh, you know, the, the, well, really any, uh, indigenous, uh, peoples, uh, in, in North America, certainly, uh, and, and definitely not with the Cree, but the other, the other element of the objection, uh, and, and maybe the more interesting one was that civilization inherently is endorsing a view of civilization and achievement and way of relating to the world and other peoples within it that is fundamentally antithetical to how uh, Native Americans sort of related to the world, particularly the Cree, right? That this idea that land is there to be grabbed and controlled and everything is in some ways a zero-sum competition with other peoples. Um, And I thought that was an interesting thing that made the experience of like seeing him in the game and sort of, you know, playing as him or playing against him a little bit uncomfortable because civilization does want to say, look, there's other forms. There, there, it is important to us to sort of represent these other groups and identities within the game and not just make civilization a game that relentlessly celebrates, uh, you know, great civilizations by the standards of, you know, Western colonialists. But on the other hand, sort of baked into civilization's DNA are a lot of like sort of domineering rail politique uh, conceptions of the world that don't really mesh well with including some of these uh, other the, some of these other civilizations like the Cree, uh, like the Mapuche. I mean. As I said in my article, it's like this is a critique from a guy who knows what civilization actually is. Uh, this is not someone random saying, don't put us in a war game. Yeah. This is like. And it ain't Jack yeah. Thompson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I thought was pretty fascinating. 
Uh, but yeah, like Civilization is a game about you know control of the map. Uh, that is often military. It increasingly is not exclusively military, although there's always a military component. Um, but there's also always a border and uh, ownership uh, component that if you believe that, you know, maybe it would be better for the world if people who managed to build on top of a resource weren't given control of that resource because it might be useful for everyone in general, then Civilization is a game that is at some level antithetical to that. So Civilization is about that race for resources. It's always been the best thing about Civilization is figuring out where to put your city to make sure you get yours. Uh, And Civilization Rise and Fall wants to kind of be not about that, but... It's still civilization. This is still the the vision that Sid Meier had at uh, the general level of uh, this is about expansion and control of uh, geography. It's weird as as I guess an outsider in this, in that my knowledge of like the indigenous people of North America is incredibly limited. In fact, it's mostly limited to chatting with like two of them in, in, in my entire life, given that in Scotland there are not many people, indigenous people from America. Um, so I, I, I guess like it's not as close to me. So when I saw some of the, the issues with adding uh, the Cree, one of the things I thought was that there are quite a few civs in the history of civilization that don't fit the model of land-grabbing, conquest-hungry uh, civilizations. And, 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 and I think that Civ has made an effort more recently to reflect that history is a little bit more elaborate. It's more of a tapestry, um, which is why you have like the idea. I think it was, it was, was it Venice? In Civ Five, Venice was the one city challenge in Civ Five. Exactly, yeah. and obviously, you know, Venice did have uh, do quite a bit of conquest historically and spread out quite far. Um, but they're just they're they're clearly experimenting with concepts that go beyond us to build more cities, swallow up more land, and thus I think introducing the Cree is kind of like a almost like a mission statement. It's like we want to go beyond what what Civ has been before, and having a Civ that is the opposite to that concept uh, actually seems like a really positive thing, like a step in the right direction. Even though I do understand that a, a, a group of people certainly wouldn't want to be characterized as a conquering civilization. Well, I think there's there's two elements, and one is like one is just the very real element of um, like. Western and American culture feeling sort of entitled to other people's identities and history uh, in a lot of ways. And like, fuck it. Like, Poundmaker's in the game. The hell with it. We've, we've got, like, he's a historical figure. We can do it. Screw you. There, there's a little bit of that. Uh, but I think, more pointedly, I, th- I do think you're right. Like, civilization is trying to move in this direction. Uh, and I think does kind of, like, it is trying to break out of some of its classic... Uh, Civ one, Civ two models of like okay, like it's daggers drawn, and only one nation is going to walk out of this. <laughs> only one nation is going to walk out of this uh, cage. But the question is, like, can civilization sort of 
be this other thing? This is the question that Roan was asking in his piece, that including these other civilizations and sort of putting a spotlight on their cultures and their history is a step in the right direction. I think a lot of the mechanics that Rise and Fall is introducing are also trying to break civilization out of that uh, winner-take-all mold. But it's still built on a foundation of that stuff. And so I, I think there's, there's sort of an inherent contradiction uh, between the, the, where some, like, some of the impetus for these moves and then how they end up getting implemented in the yeah, game. Yeah, this is a mechanical issue, and it's part, perhaps the big mechanical issue that we have with recent civilizations is uh, they, they're built around this rush to the end game, this idea of victory, this idea of success that is associated with like colonialism and militarism and cultural dominance uh, at a philosophical level, but mechanically it also kind of makes the games worse. Like there's a reason that we've been drawn to the more ambiguous gray areas, particularly in something like Crusader Kings 2. Um, there's a reason that I've been drawn to Endless Legend, which is much more about the story of your particular uh, faction and how it interacts with the world than it is crushing all your enemies before you, uh, than it is beating everyone else in a competition. No, it's about progressing through the world and the story in a way that is much more of a gray area than winner versus loser. Um, so it's it's also a critique of the game to say, yeah, I'm not sure that civilization can handle this because civilization is a specific thing uh, that has grown up over these past decades. And perhaps trying to understand how to make a game that has, that incorporates different philosophies of how history should work would make civilization or a 4X game that deals with human history a lot better. Well, I think... To, but to be fair, we are all people that have been sort of steeping in those paradox uh, waters for 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 ages, and are very comfortable with uh, how daunting those games can seem, and how fuzzy their objectives can seem, and just how much stuff there is to keep track of. Where civilization, I think, like I, there's a lot of reasons the civilization looms so large, some of its legacy, but some is in the clarity of its objectives and competition. Uh, it's, it's approachable. I don't like, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's a game that plays like Civ that then gets at all sort all these sort of soft science complexity and blurry edges that a paradox game does. Like, I have a hard time envisioning that, but you know, and there's a good reason I'm not a game designer. Uh, like if somebody, if somebody can solve that, uh, by all means go for it. I look forward to it, but I am not, it, it's just, it's difficult for me to envision the game that's going to bring out all the texture and versatility of, you know, nation state sort of scale development the way EU four does but in a way that's going to be easy to parse for people the way Civ does. I think that Fraxis maybe needs to go back to the core concepts of Civ that were you know, set up in the early 90s and just build something new out of those, those foundations rather than 
changing it to something more like EU, which I think... <laughs> Those we... foundations were literally kill everybody or build a spaceship. <laughs> what I mean, though, is like... like... You, you, were, you, were, you were Hitler or Elon Musk in, in Civ 2. I, I, that was basically... I've been going a bit deeper in that, more in the idea of trying to sort of replicate human history, but then having you manage these civilizations. Because the inspirations for these things are, are like... These, these are from board games and strategy games that had existed for a long time before Civ came out. Um, and Because I, I think that what Rowan said about uh, Civ Rev was actually, even if it was in jest, it is not a bad idea. Because Civ Rev obviously really simplified things to introduce Civ to a, a younger, more casual or console market. I think that was actually a really good idea. I didn't think... Civ Rev didn't really tickle my fancy that much, but actually going back, reducing it, and then building from there, and almost going down a new path, like a path not taken. So going almost back to 1991 and seeing what direction could we have gone in instead of the one that we took. I know that's a huge thing. I'm not expecting Fraxis to actually do that, but I think that would be what would get me passionate about Civ again. So the thing I keep thinking of is um, what are the when we talk about the paradox grand strategy games, the historical ones, uh, what are the things that allows paradox to seem to semi-successfully and I, they, they're really some issues in like, especially colonialism in EU4, but other than that, what what allows them to seem to be able to be inclusive of all these different groups in a way that we want our games to be inclusive, as well as actually still seeming like it covers both the big, the big guys and the little guys uh, that has the Ottoman Turks and has, uh, you know, the, the Inca well, the Inca are huge too, but uh, uh, some of the North American tribes in EU4 or whatever. And what what I keep coming up with is EU4 has a specific scope and they include everyone within that scope. Um, EU4 is about a specific time period and every nation that exists within that time period either exists within EU4 and has mechanics built around how their existence worked historically or they can potentially appear, you know, in the case of something like Prussia. Uh, civilization, by kind of randomly going with a haphazard grab bag of whatever civilizations seem cool, is kind of making, making claims about the representation of history that it can't quite figure out how to do. Um, like, again, why why have Scotland and not the Turks? Uh, nothing against Scotland, nothing for the Turks, just what, what is the representation of history that this says this game is about? And I think that becomes very muddled because it's trying to say it's all history but not really any of it. Um, and creating a civilization focus on a specificity of a region or of a time period or of some kind of thing where you can say we have everyone that should be included in how we're doing this would allow them to kind of transcend the issue of who deserves to be in Civ and what does it mean that those people are included in Civ. 
uh, Civilization for Colonization is like the last attempt at this, and that was probably the wrong game to do it. It should have been a Civ Five type game, uh, and obviously there are scenarios that Civilization includes that kind of do it, but uh, those have been way deprioritized in Civ Six, except for some of the expansions, not the the big expansions, some of the, the smaller DLC add-on things have added a few scenarios. But I would like to see potentially a game that has makes an attempt to say we are doing we're doing everything. Um and we're gonna do the best at it that we can as opposed to the kind of grab bag thing. And I think that might be uh, a way that civilization can still be civilization and can also represent history in a uh i don't know if positive what is the word i'm looking for but well uh, i mean like i think maybe and you were saying how does paradox pull it off i think one of the things that paradox paradox's approach actually does well is it doesn't seem like it's being necessarily positive about it like look it is admittedly fun to watch your country blob out and like conquer you're like that's fun that's cool like expanding the borders and all that stuff but like it's not like eu4 is running along cheering you cheering you and saying like no man just glory to the empire this is this is all like positive and good and morally neutral like eu4 does in a lot of places include context that like makes the trade-offs or brutality or just general ickiness of what it takes to bind a great empire together at different points in history um makes it feel like it's giving history its due without necessarily like giving you an attaboy for like ethnically cleansing the balkans for instance yeah, this um, so that that is sort of the wig history of civilization is that it makes these things seem like the march of human history is good, uh, and to some extent like deterministic. Yeah. Well, I like, think that the, the, yeah. the original sort of goal with Civ was to present a positive, optimistic outlook of human civilization. Like it's all about the great endeavors and things like that. Even though it was a game about beating the shit out of each and other and Gandhi nuking the shit out of you. Um, the, the actual, it was meant to be a sort of celebration of civilization. Like, that was the original. And I think that has continued. So it's... Uh, that, that spirit is still there. See, I, I think, like, civilization as celebration of history is one of those things, like, the optimistic vision of Gene Roddenberry that, like, has become sort of, like canonized but maybe is overstated to some extent right because like uh, civ 2 civ 2 is a game that was like fucking nuke these people see them over there just just fucking lay waste to them just get in there rob i like, thought hit, we were hit. almost done and then you had to go and bring up gene roddenberry <laughs> oh god i was just baiting you but no but like so civilization so civ is like on the one hand like man look at those wonders you built isn't that incredible humanity's pretty cool isn't it Anyway, you've unlocked marines and you can do amphibious invasions. So there's people who just built the Statue of Liberty, for instance, can suddenly have built it for you. And that's always been civilization. And like in later games, and particularly with like Firaxis marketing, civilization starts to wear these sort of bright and cheery trappings that are like, um, you know, what is civilization? It's Baba Yetu the game in some ways. <laughs> Uh, but it's it's the Swahili singing of the Lord's Prayer. 
right? It's Eurocentric as hell with a nice diverse uh, add-on to it. But I think what you've what you've <laughs> cottoned on to, Rob, is isn't necessarily that they that the goal wasn't a, a kind of optimistic view of history, but more that um, it wasn't a great job of presenting it like that. <laughs> like when you put all of these wars in there and nukes and marines, it becomes really hard to say like, oh, look, these civilizations are actually all really chill. Um, <laughs> so, so here's things that were included in previous civilizations that are no longer included in civilization. Uh, global warming and pollution. Like... The idea yeah. that what you're doing can end up being bad for the world, especially the global warming in Civilization Two, where you're slowly flooding, you're slowly flooding the entire world, and you are destroying, you know, valid cropland. Like it's weird, the environmental bent disappeared, and especially now, like I feel like this would be very much the right time to reintroduce some green stuff. Yeah, I, I hope that yeah. is the next expansion. I want a pushback on uh, rampant expansionism. Um, the thing is, it's really hard. It, it's like it, it seems to be an obstacle for game designers uh, trying game to designers. present. <laughs> not only yet, trying to present like environmentalism and green ideologies, and still making it entertaining and fun. Um, I, I, I'm, it's on my mind because I just played and wrote about. Uh, um, uh, a survival sandbox with the green bent, and the green stuff's actually all presented really well. It's the crafting sandbox that's shit. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it is actually quite quite difficult. And also, you got to wonder as well. The moment you start adding that stuff, <laughs> you got people like, "How dare you put politics in my civilization yeah. game?" <laughs> no, because like it feels like the strategy space, or maybe it's just that everyone is so much more online now that like we're confronted with how reactionary the strategy space can be. Yeah, but like or I don't think it's space. an accident. Like I, it's, it's not just strategy games, although we have our we have our own issues there at times. But like you know, you add a playable woman character in a in a game that's not Korean civilization. Oh my god, dog! Uh, I was so. There's a new expansion coming out for Total War Rome too, which um like, holy shit, guys. Like <laughs> I swear to god, I promise I'm not gonna review this one. But <laughs> but so I was like, okay, cool. Like what was going on here? Like interesting they're still supporting that game. I thought we just had an expansion. But anyway, once I got over my disbelief, I clicked over to PC Gamer and I read the comments. Oh Rob. Yeah, and like it was all like it was page after page of people arguing about the presentation of a black Cleopatra, except it was actually a different character that was in the cover art and it wasn't Cleopatra <laughs> at all. So the entire discussion was moot, but nevertheless it turned into what all conversations like this turn into. Um, and I was like, maybe just cause I noticed it more cause strategy is my backyard, but it was like, ah, oh. This is why we can't have <laughs> nuance uh, and and better representation and strategy. But I was I pretty that. close to to raising the point that with the new Age of Empires Definitive Edition, they just kept everyone white still, which I thought seemed a bit uh, foolish. Um, ultimately, it didn't really change the game that much, and it's you know I had a lot larger criticisms, and I didn't want to deal with the. People getting into fights in the comments, but it was like a, a weird 
thing that uh, you know it's trying to present all of these different cultures and civilizations, and everyone really just looks the same. They've just got different architecture. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot, and about... Civ does the same thing. Really, there's a lot of you know, uh, there's not a lot, but a bit of whitewashing in Civ as well. They've definitely gotten way better at that in in recent games, but yeah, it, it has improved. Yeah, dramatically, but it's still there. It's still present. But I don't know. Like, look, this conversation's gotten pretty far afield. Like, to some extent, <laughs> I I know that like there are issues with. Look, I think believing civilization or treating history like it's a treating civilization like it's a serious treatment of history uh, is really dangerous and scary. But I know some people do sort of interpret a lot of things in civilization. Through the lens of history, which I think is a little self-defeating, given how preposterous people do the it entire... with Kingdom Come Deliverance, they're definitely <laughs> going to do it with Civ. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but guys, I just I love my historically flavored deathmatch. I just yeah, no, I, yeah, I have fun I, with it. And like for me, I still like Civilization Six. I really like governing these cities. I don't need it to necessarily change all that much i like i'm like i'm i'm feeling less of the civ ennui i think than than maybe you guys are uh i was really having it badly a couple years ago but now i'm kind of over it um i don't necessarily feel like i need a sort of foundational reimagining of what civ is uh but i would just like a civilization six that like maybe keeps the spotlight on those elements I, I I really do enjoy, and then maybe makes this new stuff either feel a little more immediately impactful with each decision it confronts me with, or a little more parsable. That's where I come out come down with uh with rise and fall. In a perfect world, we'd have both. We could have the old kind of sieve that you want, and we could have something fresh and weird as well. Civ rev, but EU four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> be, I don't know that by that. That would certainly be interesting. Well, to I mean, see. Sora Johnson just announced his new game is some yes. sort of Civ-like 4X thing that is with Star Breeze instead of Star Dock, and uh, who knows? Maybe he's having these same conversations or similar conversations about like what is the core appeal here, uh, because that's a thing that he's good at. Um, so I, I I would like to see I'd also like to see John Schaefer finish at, at the gates. That is a that is a four X style game that seems like it's got a really fascinating take on things. Uh, so I think you know we we have Civ designers who are kind of examining this once they've gotten away from four axis. Uh, this is a potentially fruitful area to get into. Uh, like what what is what is the good core element of Civ, and I don't think that should make Civ Six go away. Uh, my big question, as has been my big question with every civilization that I have played since Civ Five came out, including Beyond Earth, is like these are all things that seem like they fit together. I like them conceptually. Will I actually play it once I'm no longer wanting to play it for this podcast or wanting to play it for uh, a review? Um, will i will i actually continue because like with when crusader kicks 2 came out i gave it a good but not exceptional review and then i just could not stop playing it for the next like two months uh that was a side that crusader kicks 2 was a game that i actually 
really truly loved. Civilization 5 and 6 have both been games that I respect, but they're not games that I feel terribly motivated to play in the way where I would like devote six months of my life to Civilization 4 or 3 or 2. Uh, that's probably never going to happen again just because it's my job to play other things. But Yeah, we're, I, we're all so old and tired. But, but I can do that with <laughs> EU4, you know? I can say I, this is the next week of my life is two or three EU4 games and I'm just going to fucking run it, man. Uh, <laughs> Game King, you're here. <laughs> you walk among us. I, I don't. I, I can resist that impulse, but with Civilization... I often don't have that impulse really at all anymore. And it it's it's just a weird feeling where I used to be not just respectful of these games, but totally on board with them. And I think it does have to do with the way that they have been designed and have become these very intricate mechanical things instead of cool systems to play around in. And I think Rise and Fall is a good step in that direction, but ask me in a week when I'm no longer recording a podcast about it, and we'll see. Well, in a week, we can still be recording this podcast. <laughs> yeah, bye. I hope our listeners are looking for a two-hour meandering podcast, because that's all they've got. It's so... bloody 3 a.m. here. This is ridiculous. All right, so one last thing uh, I just want to cover briefly. Uh, before we call, we call it, fuck it. Uh, so, tell me about Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about Gene Roddenberry's optimistic vision. Okay, so All first right, we have that to talk about this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion and perhaps, perhaps continuation <laughs> of the winter of wargaming. Three moves ahead is produced as always by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for Fraser, for Rowan, for Gene Roddenberry, this is Rob <laughs> Zachney saying goodnight. I was, I was like, we're wrapping up 45 minutes ago. I was like, we're almost done. And I don't know what happened.